Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Matthew. We thank you uh, for the story of Jesus that's unfolding uh, before our eyes. Lord, we pray that as we work our way through this story today, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that you would uh, convict us, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would help us along in our relationship with you. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, uh, for Jesus, uh, for your grace, for your love for us. Uh, Father, we desire to know you more, and we ask that you would help us to do that uh, here through the studying of your word, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me. And allowed the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? He got up. And rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side into the country of Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out, and they went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the cliff and perished into the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city, and reported everything, including what happened to the uh, demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would help us, Lord, as we investigate uh, this portion of Matthew. We look to you for help and strength, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we pick up in verse 18. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, three, probably four categories of healings. Most people just say three, um, but they leave off the last that many came to him and healed all sorts of people. Uh, We see that as they were coming down from the Sermon on the Mount, he's met by a leper. He heals this leper. Uh, Following the leper, he's uh, met by the centurion who has... Um, a slave that is paralyzed and has great pain, he reaches out to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus to say the word that this man would be healed. And it turns out that man was healed uh, based on the faith of his 
of the centurion. And then we see Peter's mother-in-law is greatly sick. Jesus heals her. And then these large crowds of people came to him, and he, we're told that he healed them all. And this was being done to fulfill what Isaiah had prophesied about Jesus from Matthew, I mean Matthew, from Isaiah chapter 53, um, that he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now we come to verse 18, and it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Um, There's a few things I want to say here. It would be very easy to read Matthew and to think that you're reading Matthew in sort of uh, chronological order that... If you were in the military, there are these green books. I just came across a couple. I'm really excited about it. There are these little green books, and they're log books. And you start at 0001. The watch is secure. And you could have, take all your notes all the way through the day, just kind of chronological order. I love them. It was, it was my iPhone before the iPhone. And so Ben's like, man, I got a bunch of these. And I'm like, give me them. I want them. And so I have them. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to use them, but somehow there's a, you know, the, the, I want them, so I have them. And so I don't know what I'm going to do with them now that I have an iPhone. But that's not what's happening in Matthew. Matthew's writing with a very specific point. Each of the writers had sort of their intent. I think probably Luke was the most chronological in his approach because he was researching as an outsider to, to lay it out in very concise order the things that had happened. Matthew's writing with the intent, as a Jewish man, writing to a Jewish audience, presenting this case that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he sort of is going in a topical sort of order. Uh, This story, it could fit here, but as you do a harmony of the Gospels, it likely was a different scene. But I'm not going to go into all that. If If you Google harmony of the gospels you'll be able to see the gospel sort of pieced together um, fitting together the pieces Um, the reason this is is god used these men to to give their accounts with uses their humanity that the spirit leads them and so we get sort of a, a different flavor of their account of the messiah if you were to go to a crime scene the law enforcement officers are going to separate everybody and they're going to start taking interviews Each person is going to give a testimony from their perception on what happened. And so uh, they're they're not inconsistencies. It's just from that angle. And so Matthew is giving us his angle. In today's story, I'll try to stay on point to his angle. However, this is one of my favorite stories that I have to go to Luke to kind of give some additional insight that he doesn't give. So when we read this, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So we could read this and we'd think, oh, you know, I lived in Lake Tahoe growing up as a young man. And for me, the other side was like, oh, man, there are a bunch of Nevadans over there. Like, you know, the uh, like South Lake Tahoe is Lake Tahoe. That's the best part of Lake Tahoe. If you guys ever visit, South Lake is the best. Like, stay on the South Lake. The other side is like weirdos, Nevadans, like, Nothing's over there. There's no good. Um, or you could go, oh, just the other side of the lake, not a big deal. You're fishing at Lake Wolford. You want to go to the other side of the lake? No big deal. Going to the other side, this almost should be in capital letters. If we were watching a movie of the Gospel of Matthew, this time of day, the sun is now setting. The story that we're studying today takes place over the course of the night. By the time we get to the other side, it's like pre-dawn situation. 
And if this was a movie and Jesus says, hey, boys, we're going over to the other side, we would get the spooky do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. I think the screen, if this was made in the 60s, it would like flash back and forth, zoom in and zoom out over to the other side. Um, the, the Sea of Galilee, if we could go to the next slide here. Um, I found a little uh, touristy map, but it was pretty good. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is 12 miles north to south and basically five miles um, east to west. Uh, it's, it's a unique lake. It's, it's 700 feet below sea level. Um, the circle up top, that's, that's where this, our story starts. The other side where we're going to end up is across to this region. Uh, this whole region in this area is known as the Decapolis. This is Gentile country. Um, <clears throat> no self-respecting Jew would go to this part of the Sea of Galilee, unless it was absolutely necessary, and they really wanted nothing to do. This was, this was idol worship, paganism. Just no self-respecting Jew would want to go there. And so Jesus says, boys, we're going over to the other side. And they would have some apprehensions. Like, we don't, why do you want us to go over there? And I do think that this factors into the story. As they're heading across and the, uh, the, the storm kicks up, I could see them saying, ah, God's not given us judgment. We shouldn't be going over here. Things are getting bad. We shouldn't have gone over there. What was he thinking sending us to the other side? You can go back to the previous verse. So this is where we're heading. It's about six miles across. Um, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And as they are... Uh, about to go to the other side, we're sort of interrupted by two men. Remember, there was large crowds. I, I, I wonder if Jesus, you know, side of me is like, well, does Jesus want to go to the other side because this is the Decapolis and, and a, a large portion of the crowd would not want to follow him over there and he's trying to get some, some away time. And if he goes to the Decapolis, this crowd of Jewish people, they're not going to follow him over there, I think, possibly. I do think that he has a bigger uh, plan in mind. But as they're getting ready to depart, in verse 19, we read, Then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, what do we know about the scribes? So far, not a positive influence, not, not so much a positive light. Um, there, there are positive scribes and Pharisees. We know that there are some who came to believe in Christ. This could be a huge pickup for, for Jesus' team. There, there's this huge crowd of followers he has the disciples this scribe this guy who's been to seminary likely has resources a, a connected man says hey i want to i want to go with you now jesus's response sort of indicates that the motivation of this guy isn't necessarily that hey he wants to join the team and sort of come in and follow jesus that he sees this as an opportunity for prosperity, for um, more influence. Clearly, Jesus is developing large crowds. From uh, By the time he does the Sermon on the Mount, there's huge crowds. He comes down, he's healing people. People are coming from all over. The scribe says, hey, I'd be good for your team. Bring me along. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And, and there begins to be this sort of in these two guys, the, the phrase that keeps coming up to me is the cost of discipleship. 
That when this guy comes to Jesus, Jesus says, listen, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Even birds of the air have a bed. Foxes have a place to sleep. But not me. I'm about to get in this boat. And I'm spending the night on, the, on this boat transiting somewhere. I, I have nowhere to go. We don't know how this man responds, but we see this Jesus sort of is pushing back on him. If you're coming to me for power, for prestige, you're, you're going the wrong direction. Now, this phrase, the son of man, this is an important phrase that's going to appear multiple times. It's the first time we've seen it in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will use this phrase, the son of man, some 29 times In the four Gospels, this phrase is used 80 or 81 times. It's the most common phrase that Jesus uses to speak about himself, which is, if we understand where this phrase comes from, it's even more fascinating in how he responds because the answer he gives to the scribe in using the title Son of Man, they seem polar opposites. This phrase comes from Daniel's chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Every Jew would know it. In fact, they longed for this prophecy to be fulfilled. They were under Roman rule. They were scattered as a people. They wanted nothing more than to be freed from this, this bondage that they were under. And Daniel's chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 says this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Jesus uses this title. This points to his deity. This points to that he is the Messiah. And it also helps us to get the disciples off the hook. It's so easy to harass them in hindsight. You know, Jesus is teaching about end times, and he keeps saying, well, when's this going to happen? Who's going to sit at your left and right when the kingdom is fulfilled? And Jesus kept saying, guys, you're missing the point. I'm going to the cross first. But they were eager for their Messiah to come. You know, we think of Palm Sunday. We, We have this as like the, we understand Palm Sunday is him waving the palm fronds as, as he makes his trek into Jerusalem as sort of this picture of the suffering servant, great humility. But see, we have to get it changed in our mind to the Jew, the palm frond. This would be the equivalent of waving American flags. Their Messiah was coming. They, they welcomed this. They wanted, they thought he was there to break them from Roman rule. And so here he says, he, he says the, the, but the son of man... So when you hear this phrase, you think ruler, wealth, power, authority, the scribe would be all for that. But then he says, the birds have a nest and the foxes have a hole, but I don't even have a spot to lay my head. It just doesn't seem to fit the picture. Also, the son of man indicates sort of the humanity of Jesus. If we were to go through the gospel of John, uh, young John, who I love so much as he's going through the Samaritan place, and they don't, really, they don't really want the Jews to pass through. John comes to Jesus, and he says, Hey, how about we just pray fire from heaven, come down on them, and take them out? And Jesus gives young John, who we know is the apostle of love, the nickname what? 
son of thunder. Now, what does that nickname indicate to you? It means that this man is sort of similar to thunder. Thunder, a couple weeks ago, we had some in Valley Center. It's like strong, abrasive, violent, scary, terrifying if you're in the right place in the world when, when lightning and stronger, what, lightning and hunger, I'm, it's too early for me to be thinking about lunch, so lightning and thunder, when they strike close, it's a terrifying thing. And so son of man, there's this, there's this likeness of his humanity. And the point is that Jesus is saying that the son of man has no prestige, no power in his uh, fulfillment of Isaiah 53 when he came no stately form. When he comes again, things will be different. We don't know how this man responds, but then a, another disciple comes up to him. Now, we have to understand the term disciple. This, the, the term disciple could be used in sort of, for lack of better terms, maybe a, a, a capital D, the disciple, the 12 apostles. Uh, but the, the term disciple was a much broader picture. We, we know that there were at times up to 70. This could be the crowds that were following Jesus, but they weren't necessarily a part. And so this is one from the, 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 the greater crowd. And another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to bury my father. This phrase, permit me first, it jumps out at me. He says, I want to follow you. But I have to take care of some stuff first. Jesus' response sounds super, super callous. Um, Permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus says to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. Like, ouch, Jesus, that sounds so harsh. And we have to understand this this idiom, this this phrase in the language. This doesn't mean, let me go bury my father first. This doesn't mean that as... His dad is on hospice and he's either about to pass or he's just passed and he has to deal with a funeral. This is sort of the, the idea that my father's aging now. He's in his 70s, 80s. I need to be there for him during this last season of his life. And then once he passes, then let me follow you. Which this verse has been a... Um, in the course of my life, has been a very difficult passage for me, especially in light of my leaving the military and saying, Lord, I'll go wherever you want to go. And then I married like a missionary kid, so then I'm like obligated to, to, to really, I mean, wrestle with going overseas. I, initially, I felt sort of that I didn't have to go overseas because I felt really called to teach the Bible. And I speak English, barely, kind of, you know, I speak English. And, and so I thought, well, I'm limited to the United States. But I kind of think that was an excuse. And then I sort of it unraveled on me that they speak English in a lot of places in the world. And there's Bible colleges and there's all sorts of things. And when this sort of thing kind of came to my attention, it's like, oh, man, I've been saying, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. But then when I found out that you could teach the Bible in other locations in English, I had to start moving on that. And so we went through the whole process of interviewing with SIM, Sudan Interior Mission. And, and I remember as they approved us and we we're really praying about going, there's this the counting the cost. And I remember thinking, well, my, my dad's 81 now, so he was in his mid-70s. And it's like, ah, oh, I 
Do, do I, do I want to move to Africa even though my dad may die or continue to age? And it was something I grappled with. I, I, I came to terms with I would leave. I felt it was okay for me to leave. There was no pressure from my dad. But, but I struggled with what this man w- was saying. Since I've been at this church and as we support and are related, like really involved with our missionaries, like I've seen the cost. Christy Tan lost her, one of her parents overseas and they waited six months to do the funeral when she was to come back. Susan Giorgi gets to call in Italy that her dad is on his deathbed and he's going to die within 48 hours. They don't know it, it, how she's going to get back. And I love that our church, that we just said, buy the ticket, we'll reimburse you. Like, we'll, we'll just either pay for it or our budget or money will come in. Like, we don't know. And so we understand the cost that they go through. And so when she, uh, she literally flew in, it, I get goosebumps thinking about this. She was able to get in, get to her dad, and within hours to be there as he died. But that's a huge cost. And Jesus doesn't present the gospel in the American way, the prosperity way, that if you follow me, everything's going to get better. That as the crowds develop, he whittles them down and says, you, do you really want to follow me? Do you understand what is associated with following me? It's come to my attention. We're doing a baptism on Friday, and we're doing it with the chapel. And there's a young girl, 16 years old, who's Muslim. Her parents literally don't speak any English. They're from another country. She has a friend from the chapel that picks her up, drives her to church in the parking lot. She removes all of her Muslim garb and then goes into church. She's given her life to Christ and she's heard that we're having a baptism. And she wants to be baptized. And I'm talking with John on Friday saying, what's the deal with this? This is powerful. Am I allowed to share this? And he's like, yeah, you can share. Her parents don't speak English and you don't know her name and you don't know. So it's fairly safe. He's like, She's like, I, I've trusted in Christ and I want to get baptized. But there's issues that we have to kind of work through. And John says, don't worry, we'll, there'll be other baptisms. So you don't have to get baptized right now. But she literally, in counting the cost of being baptized and following Christ, recognizes that her life is literally on the line. Her family is on the line. She could be disowned at best if they come to understand. And at worst, she could be killed. This is the whole counting the cost. We, as Americans, we have it far too easy. Sometimes we come to Christ out of convenience. And then if it becomes inconvenient, it's so easy to walk away. And in some respects, this whole Supreme Court ruling where, where some difficulty is going to come on the church, I think we're going to have sort of a, there's going to be a separation in the church in the United States where believers are going to be separated from non-believers that all are under the banner of Christianity. And it could be one of the best things that happens to the American church, in my humble opinion, not that I'm looking forward to going through it. But Jesus paints this picture, count the cost, count the cost, count the cost. So often I hear of young people that are, oh, I just want to finish college, then I'll follow Jesus. I'll, I want to, let, let me get my finances straightened out, then I'll start giving to the Lord. Let me get married first, and then I'll start walking. Well, let me get to retirement. Then when I get to retirement, I'll have more time to really devote my life to Christ. And I think we have, a lot of us, permit me first to, have a little fun, Lord, and then I will give you my life. And there's a challenge here. He says, no, follow me. I'm Lord. I'm either everything or I'm nothing. And it's, it's challenging. And I think about the story. What happened to these men? 
See, it's easy for us to assume, to read into the text that these guys walked away. The text doesn't say that. text just leaves us sort of in, we don't know. Maybe they walked away, considered what he said, and then they followed him. It's possible. I keep thinking, there's, as a pastor, there's nothing harder than, than doing a funeral for a person that you don't know, and then you start asking the family, well, what, where were they with God? What was their background? And the hardest is, we think he had a profession. We think he trusted in Christ. We hope he did. He had a Bible next to his bed, so we hope. And the thought that's coming is, when I come to my end, I want there to be assurance that I live for the Lord, that my family knows that Gunnar cared about Jesus, that Gunnar, when he was considering Christ, Christ tried to turn him away, count the cows, count the cows, and Gunnar said, I won't have anything to do with it, that he followed regardless. That's what I want. I don't, we'll see what happens. You guys can write me a letter when I die and say how it goes. But, but there's this count the cost. Jesus doesn't, there's no easy gospel presented to them. And then in verse 23, the story sort of picks up. Remember he said, hey guys, go get the boat, let's load up, let's go to the other side. Do, 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 I don't even, what's that from? I don't know what I'm saying, I don't know. I know it's spooky. Twilight, hey, that's a perfect movie. Yeah, it's like the, this is going to the other side that's getting dark. Jesus, what are you thinking? That's the other side, the OS. <clears throat> when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And they began to transit across the lake. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Now this word that Matthew uses is almost like an earthquake. Maybe they've been out a couple. You get the feeling that they're in the, the middle of the lake. In all of the gospel's account of this incident, Matthew uses the strongest language. Like earthquake. And I think about this. The other guys, for the most part, were like fishermen. They're watermen. They... they I mean, they knew it was a big storm. They were scared. But I kind of see a pencil-pushing tax collector guy that's in the lake in the middle of the night like, what's happening here? This was bad. A great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. Don't think the, the love boat, big cruise ship, this is a tiny little step above a canoe that they're all in there that's tossing back and forth. They're all getting wet. It says... It's being covered by the waves. This is a big lake. A storm could develop that could come, the winds could come ripping through. I've only been to the Sea of Galilee during good weather. I'm like hoping I can get there during a storm. Like if you're making the trip, to, we're going to do the Jesus boat ride. And how awesome would it be? How awesome would it be to be there to have a big old storm ripping where the guys are panicking? I would love it. But I'm different. Because, I mean, it would make for great preaching and explaining later on that I can say, oh, I was there. I thought we were going to die. Okay, where was I? Okay, covered with waves. And Jesus is sound asleep. There's one that he's relaxed. There's the other hand that Jesus, in his deity, he was fully human. Jesus is constantly trying to get away to recharge his batteries. As far as we know, he's been pressed by the crowds. People talking to him, panicking, desperately trying to see him. And as he gives of himself, he's wearing out. And I see this as a picture of 
I don't know if you, I think we've all had those moments where you've worked so, so, so hard and you fall asleep and it's like you have no clue where you are. When I was a young SEAL, I just checked into SEAL Team 3. I remember it was the summertime and I don't know what we'd been doing during the day, but I was so beat up by the time I got home that I like laid down at four o'clock in the afternoon and I woke up at, I just remember looking at my clock and seeing that it was seven o'clock, but I was supposed to be at work at like 5.30. So I panic, I pick up the phone, I call the quarter deck of SEAL Team 3. I'm like, hey, and I'm a new guy. So I'm like, hey, 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 what's, um, what's happening to the team right now? I, I'm running late. I, I got to get down there. I totally overslept. This has never happened to me. And the guy's like, Gunner, it's 7 p.m. What? It's 7 Oh, you mean I've only been asleep for three hours? I, I was so disoriented because I was so tired. I thought I slept the whole night. And I get the picture of Jesus being this like tired. He's in the back. of There's nothing like sleeping in a boat. And the more it rocks, the better. It's like being in a hammock where you're, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've never been on the cruise, or the civilian type, but in the Navy, I've been on a cruise. And there's nothing like sleeping on a ship. It's wonderful. And, and the more dangerous, like the more you rock, oh man, I sleep like a baby. And so he's asleep and they came to him, verse 25, and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And this isn't just Matthew saying we're perishing. These are, these are watermen. These are fishermen, tough guys who grew up on this lake. They know this lake inside and out. They know uh, the situation. It makes me wonder if there's something supernatural behind the storm. I don't know if Satan is trying to destroy these guys. If I was Satan, I would, but there's no indication. But they think that they're dying. And I don't know if they're having to start jettisoning people to try to save the ship like back in Jonah. Like, hey, Jesus, you need to wake up. We're dying. Who's going? Is it John? Is it Peter? Is it who's got to be kicked off to try to save the boat? And Jesus wakes up. He gets up. And he, he rebukes, muzzles, kind of like the, the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the image I've had is like a, a parent, maybe not of a two-year-old. A two-year-old doesn't necessarily respond. But when you get like the, the four to six to like 12-year-old, there's nothing like a mom from across the room can do this. And it's just like, uh-oh, I better stop. And Jesus gets up and he just rebukes it. Stop it. And I think there's a couple miracles. I, I think that there's... The storm stops, the wind, everything that was happening just stops. But if you were in the ocean, because it's more familiar to me, but it, or a lake that a storm like this, the wind could stop, but it's going to take a while for the water to stop churning. So I believe that not only did the elements stop, but suddenly the water became like glass. Can you imagine with these guys? It's in the middle of the night. Jesus, we're about to perish. Like, what does he say? Stop it? Like, did he just look up and say, stop it? And it stopped? Like, I, like it just says he rebuked it. And it stopped. And verse 27 is the point. Now, I've heard so many messages on this passage that sort of ends with the, that the, that the point of this is that you're walking through storms and Jesus can calm your storms. Which, Jesus can calm your storms. I, I've, like, sometimes he's putting us through storms and he doesn't want to calm our storms. Matthew's point here is verse 27. Matthew's whole point is not to talk to us about our storms. We, we don't matter. 
I mean, that sounds really bad, but in the like, we're nobodies. Jesus is the creator, and he wants us to understand that not only does Jesus heal infirmities and raise people, but Jesus is Lord over the elements, that he can speak and things change. And the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Remember, he just said he's the son of man. Daniel chapter 7. And their question, what kind of man is this? And the answer is he's not a man. He is God. Because no man can just, we could do it all day long. I, I dare you guys. Like, well, no, I'm, I'm waiting for a storm. Let's go have a contest to go out here and say, start raining. We can do the other way. Like, start, we want rain. I'm pretty sure that we could all go out there for 24 hours. I, well, I haven't looked at the weather. I'm assuming that this is our weather for the next three months. But I'm pretty sure that all of us, I'll give us each a 24-hour winter to go out there and be, do our best rain dance. And I don't think that it'll happen. Jesus could walk out. and Well, he could just do it from right here. Hey, start raining. And the, the rain would come down. Matthew is pointing the reader to the deity, the power, the mightiness, the majesty, the awesomeness of Jesus. That he's not like any other man. He's not just some good teacher. He's not just some good uh, scam artist. That when he speaks to the elements, they stop. That the lake gets calm. And so in the middle of the lake, we see these guys just, just in awe. Amazement of Jesus' majesty. And then we come to verse 28, which is, I think, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I say that a lot, so I, I enjoy this story quite a bit. More Luke's account than Matthew's account. So in verse 28, we read, When he came to the other side of the country of Gadarenes, two men who are demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. I believe it's now... Uh, not quite sunrise, but you know that time before the sun comes up where the sky starts turning blue, like you can still see black. Um, th they land there. And Matthew says that there are two demon-possessed men, and he says that they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by the way. Um, the story is, is accounted in uh, both Matthew and, I mean, Mark and Luke. Both Mark and Luke, they only account for the one guy. They don't mention the two guys. And I believe it's because of how the one guy responded, which we'll look at towards the end here. But, 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 but this is, these guys, if they weren't scared by when they were going across the other side that the storm kicked up, when they land here and they're, they're met with these two extremely violent men. Uh, we know from the other accounts that they're naked. They've been cutting themselves. These are terrifying people. No one could pass by the way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? So they look at Jesus. What do you have to do with us? Why are you here? But notice the title they use, son of God. And in stark contrast to nine verses early, Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. And I think this is, we, we see in these two stories sort of the uh, the, the, you know, the, the $3 word that I learned in seminary, hypostatic union of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man. 
sort of together in a way that we can't possibly understand. These demons, when they see Jesus, they know who he is. What, what business do we have to do with one another? They continue. Have you come to torment us? Notice the phrase, before the time. Jesus often says, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. And eventually it would be his time. But here they identify, what are you doing here? Are you here to torment us before the time? They knew a day would come when, when he would come and destroy them. He said, they're like, hey, 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 you're early, bud. <laughs> we have some more time. What are you doing here? Are you here just to torment us? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Early in my Christian life, when I'm reading the Bible, I thought, oh, these must be bad Jews. Like they have swine because bacon's so awesome. Like it was wrong, so God's destroying the pigs because pigs are bad. That's not what's happening here. These are, this is the Decapolis. These are, these are Gentiles. These are Greeks. Totally okay for them to have swine. Bacon was on the menu over here. And we say, hey, here's some swine. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. So they're sort of like plea bargaining with him. And I don't understand. I've never been a demon. But I think that there's some reason that they like to embody sort of living tissue because, uh, you know, it's been speculated. Well, humans are ideal because of our brain capacity that we're able to do more things than than they could do. They'll settle for a pig. They'd rather be in a pig's body than a no body because they knew they were going to cast out. It's like, hey, why don't you just cast us into the pigs? We'll settle for that. And then you go your way. We'll go to the pigs. There's not a whole lot of commentary, a whole lot of speculation. And he said to them, go. And they came out and they went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, at this point, I don't know what happened to to these demons. I think that they got their wish. They win the pigs. The pigs died. And I think that the the demons still exist. I don't like we the demons aren't destroyed. These are fallen angels. Story doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to speculate. The herdsmen, so there's herdsmen responsible for these pig. They see their whole, whether it was theirs or likely another owner's, their boss's whole property be destroyed that they're responsible for. This is a bad thing for them. They have one job to keep the pigs safe and you're out in the middle of the countryside and all the pigs just run into the lake and die. How does that happen? So they run away and they went to the city and they reported everything, including to what had happened to the, this is a word that I just have a terrible time saying, uh, demoniacs. Anybody offer a better suggestion? I don't, demoniacs. That sounds like how I said it. So I'm going <laughs> to stick with that. Sounds good to me. I am why the two of us are in agreement. So they share what happened to these men. They share what happened to the pigs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region, get out of here. Um, If you'll turn with me over to Luke chapter 8, because Matthew just says that they they basically leave. Because I think Matthew, to the Jewish mind, he's pointing to this 
authority of Jesus. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think in these accounts, he's demonstrated his authority. But there's so much more to the story. And if we go over to Luke chapter 8, and Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39 is sort of the, the overarching story. I want us to start at verse 34. So Luke chapter 8, verse 34. We pick up with the herdsmen seeing their pigs going over. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported um, and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Like, I want to stop there. These people knew who these two men were. Luke only gives the account of the one man because the one man's story is very powerful. The guy was naked. He'd been cutting himself. He was terrifying. They tried to, I, I think Luke tells us that, he, that they had chained him up, but he kept breaking out of the, the chains. So I have this picture of this man with shackles on him with, that is not connected to anything. They all know this guy. They're all terrified of this guy. If my memory serves me right from, from Luke, that this is sort of like a graveyard where they had buried the people. I could be wrong, but I, I should probably, I could go read back, but then too many files would get open in my brain. The guy was spooky. They all knew him. But now when they come back, they see this man clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. We see that they're terrified. We see that they don't have a clue how he did this. But this is a terribly sad story that the whole city who knew these people, these two guys, they were somebody's children. I don't know how you guys see homeless people when you go out there. When I ride with law enforcement officers and I see like crazy distraught people in the streets, it like breaks my heart maybe because I'm like a, a dad. I mean, it breaks my heart at one level and the other level doesn't really break my heart. But there's times when I sit there and think, well, some, at some point, this human being came out of the womb and was the joy of somebody's heart. And how do they go from there to where they are now? Heart-wrenching. And the same is true for these two men. And now this guy who is crazy, dangerous, terrifying, nobody could pass through, he's sitting there clothed in his right mind. But the city cared more about their economy than they did about the individual. They would rather see Jesus gone than to see their, their whatever it is, their pig economy destroyed. Sad. They're terrified because they see the miracle, they see the evidence, they, they see that something happened. But instead of bowing down and responding to Jesus as Lord, they kick him out of town. And, and moving on, the story of this man in verse 38. I love. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, so here's this guy. Who knows how many years he's been there naked, tormented by demons. Jesus comes. He casts the demons out of him. He gets some clothes on. He's thinking clearly, has control of his body. Jesus is just now kicked out of town. He wants nothing more. Lord, let me go with you. Lord, let me go with you. Lord, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. 
Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And Jesus returned to the people who welcomed him. So he goes back to the other side of the lake. This is fascinating. The, the leper, what does he say? Don't say anything. Go to the priest. What does the guy do? He goes around and tells everybody what Jesus did, exactly what Jesus had told him not to do. This guy, there's no going to the priest. He's not Jewish. Go tell everybody what I've done for you. This is the Decapolis. This is a totally different region. These are a non-Jewish segment. And so when I come back to Matthew and I see this story, yeah, before I end, this guy's told to go away, to go proclaim what Jesus has done. As we continue through Matthew, we'll eventually come to Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39, and Mark 7, 31 through 36 is the, the mere story. We'll come to the feeding of the 4,000. Where does the feeding of the 4,000 happen? Glad you guys asked. It happened in the Decapolis. So when Jesus returns the second time, this town he had just been kicked out of, how was he met then? He's met by thousands of people who greet him with open arms. They want to hear more of his teaching. And all the evidence points to this one crazy man that had been set free from the demons that he went out and he proclaimed so that the next time that Jesus returned, the whole region welcomes Jesus with open arms, wanting to know more. And the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 happens. Fascinating. But when I look at this story, verses 18 through 34, Jesus just bubbles to the surface. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is all-powerful over everything. But then I look at these different groups of people. We see the scribe who comes to Jesus, and, and there's this sense that he wants some power, prestige, influence over people. Then we see this disciple that wants to follow Jesus, but he has all of these, these earthly relationships that he just needs to tend to first. He has his excuses. His motives seem to be good, but he has some, from a human perspective, good reasons for holding back, but he wants to at a later time. Then we see the disciples who I love. They're like, they're the chosen 12. The, they're the ones that Jesus is going to entrust with continuing the movement of the church following his departure. They've seen, they've heard his teaching. They've seen multiple miracles. And yet as the storm kicks up the lake, they totally are huge failures. Jesus says, where's your faith? And we just learned about the centurion, this great faith in all of Israel. It's like, why can't you guys be a little bit more like the centurion? He understands. I speak. I do this. Like, guys, like, like they're, they're not getting it, but Jesus continues to, like, just work with them and help them along. And then we come to this, this demon-possessed man. Well, there's two here, but we know of the one. He wants nothing more to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you, you can't follow me. I need you to stay here and do this. And so this whole theme of the cost of discipleship. I'll never forget in seminary, uh, George Hare, who's preached here, he's, he's up there in ages, his back's, you know, really hunched over. He's been like that ever since I've known him. And we were in class, and our, our, my seminary really has a strong push and um, 
support system for, for missions and people that are serving overseas. Um, it's, it's one part of, you know, what's shaped me. But I remember in class one day, he's like, I really don't like missionary books. What? Like this seminary is a huge mission school. Like over the course of my four or five years at the seminary, I've seen the church's budget that's connected them. Their missions budget, Shadow Mountain's missions budget at the time went from $1 million to $2 million a year over my short time as how much they cared about missions. And here's the guy who's super connected and he says, I don't like my students reading missionary books. Dr. Hare, why would you say something like that? I'm married to a missionary kid and she has me reading all these missionary books that I never knew about. They're fascinating. He's like, the problem though, he's like, the problem that I see is somebody reads a book about George Mueller or Betty Green or some great missionary. They read their story and they begin to think that if they want to be obedient to God, they got to live out their story. God's doing something in your life and you need to do what he wants you to do. And so if you're reading these stories and you're being inspired and you are seeking God's direction in your life, then that's fine. And so when I look at this between the one scribe, the disciple, the disciples, this, de- this demon-possessed man, the cost of discipleship is great. For one, Jesus says, to follow means, me means that you're going to have to give up your prestige. The other, he says, you're going to have to give up, the, or the same one, that you're going to have to give up uh, a place to sleep. To the next, he says, you're going to have to give up, you're going to have to give up some family relationships. Some of your relationships are going to have to be cut if you follow me. The other group, I don't know what the third group, the disciples, they, they, they ultimately would give their lives, all, all of them except for one. And that one even gave his life just because the executioners were not successful. They, they would give their lives in following him. That was the cost. We see the demon, he, the demon-possessed guy wants nothing more to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, 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 I have a different plan for you. Your plan of following me means that you stay. And to me, leaving the military to come into the, the ministry, this was a terribly difficult thing. There's a, there was a side of me, an early wrestling match, as Ann and I were like in that, hey, are we going to get married? Well, what are you doing with your life, she'd ask me. Well, I'm serving God. She's like, well, that's great, but does that mean you're going to serve as a Navy SEAL, trying to reach Navy SEALs? I'm like, well, I'm really praying about that. And she's like, well, I'm not giving an ultimatum, but I don't, that's not the direction that my life is going. And so we had this, like, it was like a year of me really soul searching, like, Lord, do you want me to go to Bible college and seminary and stay within the SEAL teams? Then I moved on to, do you want me to go overseas? What are you doing? And then he sent me to the to, to Valley Center, my Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up here. But God hasn't called you all, you know, I'm me. Like, I, I have to do what God wants me to do. You have to do what God wants you to do. My role here is to help you figure out what that is. And I love that Jesus is so catered specifically to the individual. He wants all of us to follow him. He wants all of us to bow down and recognize him as Lord, that we would have life. As we follow him, it could mean that you stay in Valley Center. You know, in a couple of weeks, Michael Nichols is going to come. He's going to share with us about what their family's doing in, in uh, Tanzania. And it's so easy that as he's speaking, 
as he shares what he's doing, translating the Bible into eight different languages, to, to, to start beating yourself up like, man, I really have not done anything for the Lord. I can barely speak English, like let alone like what, like, if I really want to serve God, that means maybe I should like pack up my whole family and move to Africa. If I want to be spiritual like him, no, no, no. If God's calling you, that's one thing. But God very likely has called you to Valley Center. Like we're, we're all, you know, we're not young kids wrestling through life at large part in Valley Center if you're here. And for every one person that's got over there, it takes, I don't know, 100 people to support them. Just as spiritual, your place of employment is, is where God has you, your place of employment, your school, whatever, you can be used by him. He could be calling you there. We in Valley Center, we actually are, you know, the Bible doesn't start from Valley Center to work itself out. We're kind of, we are the ends of the earth. Like the whole world is a small place. So the matter of what has God called you to do? How are you supposed to serve him? It's going to look different for each one of us. And so I love, that's what I, this whole story is just beautiful. And I'll stop talking now. Let's pray. Um, Father, I do thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. Lord, I am. Um, to see how you stretched these disciples, Lord, by leading them to the other side of the lake. Um, making them press beyond their fears. And in doing so, Lord, you showed them um, how awesome, how in control you are. And Father, we each have things in our life that we are terrified of. Losing our health, losing our jobs, losing our finances, losing whatever it is, Lord. And so, Father, we come to you and we pray that you would help us Lord, to increase our trust in you, uh, that our faith would grow, that we would increase, that we would um, be able to walk in peace following you. Lord, I pray for every person here that you would help them uh, to reach that place in our life where they have assurance that they are saved uh, by your work on the cross. And Father, for those of us who have followed you, uh, some of us might have, just accepted you as Savior because that's what our family did. That's all we've known, but we've never been forced to, to truly evaluate the cost. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you would help each one of us to do that in our hearts, Lord, that we would really wrestle through the question of why are we following you? Um, Father, I pray that you would help each of us to see um, that which you've called us to do, Lord, that you would help us to see your will in our lives. Um, Lord, we thank you for the great stories of the Bible, for the great people that you have um, used over the course of history. Um, we thank you for the great encouragement that is found there. But Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to figure out our calling. Uh, it could be at home. It could be at our place of employment. It could be at our school could be with our neighbors. It could be going overseas, Lord, I don't know. But Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are obedient, hearts that are willing to follow, hearts that are willing to go regardless of any cost that we might have to pay. For we know that there is no cost that is greater than the one you paid for us.
And so we thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is found in you alone. We thank you for the security that we have in you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.